Welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad that you've joined us again on Mission 150. I'm David Trim. And I'm Sam Nevis. David, what do you have for us today? So today we're going to talk about early missionaries to the Middle East, a huge area inhabited by hundreds of millions of people, the overwhelming majority of whom still know little of Jesus Christ. But Adventists have a long history of working in that vast region and for that enormous population. And as we have seen in other areas, the work of early missionaries was marked by very considerable sacrifice. So if the tropical zones of the world were particularly dangerous for Westerners at the turn of the 20th century, which we talked about the last two episodes with China and India, it's nevertheless the case that lethal diseases for which medical science then lacked good cures were present all around the world, including in zones better known for deserts than for jungles. For example, in January 1904, J.G. Teschner, a German male nurse of whom we know almost nothing, arrived in Jerusalem where he was to work in the church's clinic there. Around August 1905, so after about 18 months, he died of an unknown illness. As the church's main paper, the Review and Herald, reported, he had but landed in Syria when he was called to lay down his armor. He didn't serve even two years before he died, and he was probably the first German Adventist missionary to die in the field. The General Conference Secretary, William Spicer, himself an ex-missionary, as we've talked about in the past, Spicer drew the attention of the review's American readers to Teschner's sacrifice. Spicer wrote, Thus our brethren in Europe show that they too are ready to join us in giving not only means for missionary advance, by which he means money, Mm -hmm. but also in paying the price that soldiers must ever be ready to pay for victory. So there is a celebration that Europeans are also sending missionaries to different parts of the world. Yes, absolutely. That this isn't, and Spicer wants to stress this because Spicer is a great advocate for the unity of the church. Mm. And he wants to stress this isn't just an American work. And within a few years, of course, you not only have missionaries from Germany, but from Britain and from Australia as well, going out into the mission field. And Spicer wants to emphasize that partly to help keeping help keep the motivation for Americans to say, you know, if other people are doing their part, then you need to keep up to the mark as well. Today we have an emphasis on mission refocus, which also indicates that we want to, we want every field, every union, every yes. uh, division to think of sending missionaries to other parts of the world. Yes. And this would be very much in line with what Spicer is. is Oh, very much. Spicer could have been the, if Spicer had been alive today, he would have been the architect of of mission refocus. Indeed, if Spicer would just be saying, why did it take you so long to get to this? Uh, Because Spicer is the great visionary of, of Adventist global mission. And also the great popularizer of Adventist mission. I like to say that Spicer implanted mission in Adventist DNA. Hmm because he not only traveled very widely, but he wrote prodigiously for Adventist publications. His articles appear constantly, always about mission. He writes numerous, numerous books, mostly about the mission work and missionaries and and the mission field. 
so he implants a passion for mission in Adventist DNA. Well, I mean, it was probably already there to some extent, but Spicer really drives it home. What I like about Spicer is the global nature of his writings. He's always thinking globally. He's always thinking like he's not, he's not detached from the local realities, but he's thinking, he's trying to inspire this, this as you said, this world church um, sense that, that it's not, you may have go to a local church that only has a few members, but you're part of this global movement. So 100%, that is, that is a large part of, of Spicer's personal DNA and the way he conceives the church. And so when you read his books about mission, for example, he brings mission stories from around the globe. It's never just the story of missionary work in one area. Um, and he also will tell the stories of other Protestant missionaries. So he, you know, he has a sense that we are part of a, of a, bigger, of a bigger whole, but nevertheless, we have a distinctive part. Um, and Spicer also is very strong on the unity of the church, which when he became General Conference president in 1922, was probably about the first time that a General Conference president needed to be concerned about global unity. Because up till that time, the church had been relatively geographically constrained. By 1922, when Spicer becomes president, you've now got significant Adventist homelands in Germany, in Scandinavia, in Britain, in Australia, in South Africa, all of which are sending missionaries. And you've got the burgeoning mission fields as well. So for the first time, Spicer probably recognizes, hey, we have to do something to keep everybody aware that we're part of a global family. I, I, in some way, the missionary focus, that's our term for today, but the idea that different fields need to send missionaries also is also an antidote for centralization in many ways because 100%. if you want to unite the church, one way is for you to centralize all the power as much as possible and everybody follows the leader and done. But Spicer calls for local fields to have autonomy enough to develop their own missionaries and send people to different parts of the world. So the, the unity is not based on, the unity is based on our common sense of mission, that the priority is that we should all be sending missionaries, not just particular parts of the world where the church started, namely the United States. That's right. And so because the, it's still at an early stage in Latin America and Africa and Asia, there's not the prospect yet of missionaries going from those places. But Spicer would love the present day where missionaries go from Mexico and the Philippines and Brazil um, and indeed from China. Uh, there are Chinese Adventist missionaries working in other parts of the world. Um, so Spicer would, that, that very much is the fruition of Spicer's vision for the world church. Beautiful. Back in our history, in 1902, so we talked about J.G. Teschner, about whom we know almost nothing except his name and the fact of his death. So a German guy goes to the, to the Middle East, to Jerusalem, Palestine, to Jerusalem, and yes. then Syria. You mentioned Syria there. Well, they, Syria, they mean by Syria they, what we today would call Palestine. Oh, so he spends his whole time in Jerusalem, but they call that Syria mm -hmm. because it's a province of the Ottoman Empire. In 1902, William H. Wakem and his wife Emma were called to Egypt, where Wakem was superintendent of the Oriental Union Mission. Oriental today, you know, in, in, uh, in English-speaking countries would basically mean China, say, or Japan. But uh, German missionaries were, were very important in the early history in the Middle East, 
and they use Orient in the German way to mean what we would call the Middle East. I see. So same word, but different parts of the world depending on where you're from. Right. So they mean in the Orient, by the Oriental Union mission, it's the term for the Middle East. Mm -hmm. William and Emma were both Americans. William had previously been serving the church in the state of Ohio, though Emma was of German ethnicity. Um, William and Emma served in the Middle East for four years. William was conscientious, he was assiduous, he traveled widely across the region to provide leadership and training to local church workers and other missionaries. We actually have a good photo of him in the General Conference archives, which we'll share in the video version of the podcast that shows William with a group of Armenian church workers from a Bible training institute in late 1905. Hmm. Um, so he's trying to inculcate local people in Adventist knowledge and Adventist practice and also give them more skills for mission. Sure. Um, although it was William who was traveling with the associated dangers from the elements and from viruses or bacteria, Emma and the children were also ex exposed to infection and they experienced privation and periodic uncertainty about their husband and father's fate. And actually this was true for many years. Uh, George D. Keogh, who we should do an episode on perhaps soon, legendary British missionary to Egypt in the Middle East. Hmm. He would travel in Egypt and be gone for weeks, and his wife would have no idea where he was or whether he was still alive or not, and just had to trust in God that he was going to come home safely. I don't know how Amy would deal with that, because she follows <laughs> me on, on Find My Phone, you know, <laughs> constantly. Sometimes I'm, I go to places and she goes, restaurants, it's the funniest thing. Well, and then all of a sudden I get a text and she goes, I think you ordered this. And often <laughs> she's right because she checked where I was. She checks the menu of that yes, particular yes. place. And, but a, then, very different story. Uh, very, there's no Facebook or Twitter that you can follow your somebody on and know what they're doing. Hmm. Um, so yeah, Emma and the children at times, what's, what, what's happening to William? Because he's not only traveling in Egypt where they're based, he's traveling all the way up into Syria and what we today would call Turkey, again, part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and only God knows when he's going to come back, really. That's right. That's right. During their four years in Egypt, a colleague later wrote, the family were exposed to many hardships and suffered from many diseases. However, that report continues, Sister Wakeham, being a trained nurse, was able by the Lord's help to bring all her children through this trying ordeal. But with the extreme heat of Egypt, in addition to what she had otherwise endured, her health broke. On May 6, 1906, the family took ship from Alexandria for the British port of Southampton, hoping that the sea voyage would greatly relieve Emma, who by now, her husband wrote, was suffering a rapid breakdown of all the vital powers. It's a grim sentence. They hoped that the medical treatments available in the West would effect a cure. But Emma sadly never made it to England. She died while the ship was still at sea off the coast of Spain and she was buried at sea on May 13, 1906. William emotionally recorded the death of my dear wife Emma in her 46th year. He paid tribute to her, and his sense of loss pierces the veil of stoicism that he attempted to draw over his bereavement, because of course this is the Victorian Edwardian era where you keep your emotions in check. Mm. But you can't help but see what he's really thinking. He wrote in her obituary, she has always been a loving wife, a devoted mother, an unselfish and untiring worker for suffering humanity. Four children, 
two boys and two girls, feel keenly this great loss. With hearts sad and sore, yet buoyed up by the blessed hope, we committed her body to old ocean's arms, confident that, though no monument marks her resting place, she shall not be overlooked when the life-giver calls the sleeping saints. We do not know the meaning of this bereavement, our loss, Egypt's loss. You can't help but feel the pain there beneath the attempt to maintain a, a positive outlook. Yes. And also that, but also the, the, the trust. Um, that there is a blessed hope. And he will see her again. Were the children with him? Do we know? And what happens with them? The children are with him. They, they continue on to England. Wakeham never returned to Egypt, though he actually stays in Britain and he works there for several years more as a missionary in working for the British mission. Hmm. Um, What's his name? William Wakeham. Wakeham. Okay. Yeah. And you and I are both thinking, I've never heard that story in right. England. Yeah, yeah. He's completely forgotten. Um, and yet, he gave a great deal in the death of his wife. So, that's 1906. Meanwhile, in 1903, an American medical missionary, Dr. Arthur W. George, had arrived in Constantinople, today's Istanbul. He became director of the Turkish mission. Arthur worked hard to learn French, which was the language of Ottoman medical examinations. We talked in a previous episode about did doctors have to get, be licensed in order to right. practice. Right. In China, as we discussed, that wasn't the case, but in some parts of the world it was. The Ottoman Empire has a central bureaucracy, and so for him to practice as a doctor, he needs to pass the Ottoman medical examination. Which is in French. Which is in French. Hmm. So they're not willing to give him credit just for his American medical degree. Um, he has to pass their exams, so he needs to learn French in order to do that. So he, he works hard at that. And he opened treatment rooms in Constantinople. He could open treatment rooms because he's, in effect, not practicing as a doctor. He's practicing almost as a nurse mm. or a, a physiotherapist or a hydrotherapist. Right. Um, Arthur, though, contracted what at first seemed like influenza, but was eventually confirmed as tuberculosis. A church leader wrote that Arthur was a faithful worker in both medical and evangelistic effort. So again, he's one of those doctors who's not just a doctor, he's also a pastor and an evangelist. But the church leader wrote, Arthur clung to his work too long for the good of his health. In the end, a successor was called from America, Elder Claude D. Akmudi, but Dr. George was so ill that he couldn't wait for a handover. Eleven years before Akmudi arrived, Arthur and his German wife, Johanna, who he'd only married 17 months before, left the Turkish capital by train for Switzerland. That was November 22, 1906. Arthur was taken to the Adventist Sanitarium in Glan, Switzerland, which is still there. It's today's Clinique La Liniere. Mm. And then he was taken to Friedensau Sanitarium in Germany. But it was too late. After three years' service as a missionary, Arthur W. George passed away on February 13, 1907. He was just 34 years old. The reaction of his brother, who's also a physician, the re reaction on learning of Arthur's death was similar to that of many other bereaved family members of Adventist missionaries. He wrote to the Secretary of the General Conference, again, who we've talked about, William Spicer, and says, 
I hope that the work in Turkey will be in no way hindered, but that his death may stimulate others to take up the work and do more. If so, we can feel that our sacrifice in giving him up will be repaid. That's exactly right. For the family, a sense of continuation is paramount. Yes. Otherwise, it's a wasted right. life. The sense that this hasn't been in vain. That's right. Now, we talked about his successor, Claudac Moody. He arrived in Constantinople in December 1906. He was only going to turn 28 the following February. Mm. So we've seen this before, Sam. Um, so many Adventist missionaries were very young in their early to mid-twenties. Yes. Or in George's case, just turned 30 when he, when he went out from America. Um, at times, perhaps, people hear mission stories and they see photos and they see photos of people taken later in life when they're middle-aged. And so perhaps young people today have a misapprehension. That's a great point. And they think that missionaries were all people in middle age. Yeah. But they're not. It's just that often the photos we have of them are in later life. Hmm. And actually, our early missionaries were incredibly young. And that, to me, is an extraordinary thought, Sam. And we'll come back to Claudac Moody, but let's just talk about this point for a moment. Because there's two things to be said. One is the the commitment of these young people willing to go. Mm -hmm. But the second is, the church is willing to trust them. Exactly right. To new fields that would determine how the church would operate there for decades to come. That's right. They are going to shape the church. And here's a 24-year-old, go. 28-year-old, go. Yes. Yeah. You are responsible for making the church what it's going to be. So the level of trust um, is extraordinary. And maybe that's today where we've lost a little bit of the, the edge that we had, say, 100 and 120 years ago. Perhaps now we, we're not so willing to send really young people. We're not so trusting. And yet, this is how the world church was built up. The fact that we have a world church today is because of those young people who the church trusted and said, go, you make the church what it's going to be. And there are still new territories to be sent. I, I wondered, <clears throat> as you're describing this, David, how many... How many of our young people in their 20s finish the degree? Maybe they finish the bachelor's, sometimes a master's, but in the process of academic inflation, where you needed a bachelor's, now you need a master's, where yeah. you needed a master's, now you need a doctorate. How many of them are officially unemployed as soon as they finish their degree? Because they don't have any experience and they apply to different jobs and nothing happens. What if you were to prepare yourself during your studies and then decide that you would give one, two, five years yep. to the mission field immediately after. By the time you come back, you will have a phenomenal view of the world, enough experience to apply to any job you need in your field, and at least you don't go home to play video games on your mother's basement. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, maybe I'm being too dramatic, but there is a point that you say, okay, I'm, I have my studies, why not dedicate the prime first few years yes. to the mission field yeah. like they did. Well, and of course, we do have student missionaries today, people who do give a year of even while they're studying. Right. And often that's a life-transforming experience, absolutely transformative experience. Um, and we've talked to uh, a couple of people uh, who went as, right. as student missionaries and who are planning to go as missionaries themselves. But I agree, it would be, it would be good for us to go back to that, I think, 
to that mindset that says, here's somebody who's just finished their bachelor's or perhaps their master's if they're a pastor, finished an MDiv or whatever it may be, um, spend that five-year term because in theory we ask people to commit to five years in the mission field. Not student missionaries there one year, but generally missionaries we ask to commit to five years. Go do that and then see what you want to do with your life because as you say, you'll be well-skilled towards it. You'll be, you have experience. And God will honor it. I'm, I'm, I'm certain of it. God will honor it. Absolutely. Okay, Middle East, what happened? Yes. So Claudak Moody arrives, only 27 years old. This is December 1906. He'd graduated from Battle Creek College in 1902 and begun pastoring in Wisconsin. In June 1904, age 22, he married. But rather than settling down, he and his wife Henrietta decided that they wanted to serve as missionaries. And in 1905, Claude returned to college. He joined the second class to study at Washington Training College, which had opened its doors in 1904, and in 1907 was going to be renamed Washington Foreign Mission Seminary. But when Claude started classes there two years earlier, it was already a general conference institution focused on training those who were willing to work overseas, to train them in the particular challenges that they're going to face, to give them language skills, to give them some ideas about different cultures, different legal requirements, and so forth. So Claude is, is at the Washington Foreign Mission Seminary, so we know he wants to study his, wants to go as a foreign missionary. Um, so committed were Claude and Henrietta that he enrolled, even though Henrietta, who was expecting their first child, was having a difficult pregnancy and couldn't travel. In the autumn of 1905, Claude moved to Washington, D.C. without Henrietta, but accompanied by his brother, Clayton, who also wanted to be a missionary. Claude and his mother, Florence, went to Wisconsin for Henrietta's confinement, no doubt expecting that she would return with them to Washington. But sadly, Henrietta died in childbirth on September 24, 1905, and the infant died soon after. And that's a reminder that... Um, Life expectancy wasn't what it is today, even in the Western world. Um, and actually, as an historian, I can tell you, giving birth was about the most dangerous thing a woman could do because of the dangers of complications. You wouldn't think it because they had a lot more children than women do today. Yeah, that's, that's true. But it was an extreme, and many of those women died, many women died in childbirth or in pregnancy, and many children didn't survive. Now, by this stage, actually, the life expectancy of children was already improving. Child mortality was decreasing thanks to good nutrition, to hygiene, and, mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, but it's still the case that things like diphtheria, scarlet fever, whooping cough, measles, um, kill an awful lot of children. So we've talked about missionary mortality, and rightly so, and it is much worse in the mission field, but uh, Henrietta's fate is just a reminder that... Um, even back home is not what it is Even back today. home, it's not what it is today. So Claude must have been distraught. Sure. But he returned to Washington, D.C. and completed a year-long course. Now, we think, we, we talked about the use of French in the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. We think he already knew French, for while he was a student, he was considered for service in Quebec, in French-speaking Canada. But within weeks of completing his studies, he was instead called to the Ottoman Empire. But French was used there, so his linguistic skills would have still been useful. Mm -hmm. Claude submitted his application for his first U.S. passport on October 30, 1906. We've been able to find that on Ancestry.com. Wow. So we know the date of his passport. By an odd coincidence, not long before that, 
the Young People's Society of Tacoma Park, of which Claude and Clayton were members, they had Elder G.F. Enoch, missionary to Trinidad, as its guest speaker on the Sabbath. And George Enoch's brother, Charles, had died just four months uh, before in Port of Spain in Trinidad, where he was serving as a self-supporting missionary. And in an earlier episode, we talked about how bad things were in Trinidad because of yellow fever. Right. And so Charles Enoch is one of those who dies there. Um, Claude spent time with his parents and sailed for Europe on November 8, 1906. Then he travels across Germany and Romania by train and thence by ship to Constantinople, where he arrived on December 3, 1906. What do we know about Claude? We know he was a temperance advocate and that he was enthusiastic about both public evangelism and personal witnessing. His brother Clayton, with whom he was close, was a talented singer, and perhaps Claude had this in common with him. Often those things are genetic and they run together. But Clayton didn't go with him. Clayton didn't go with him. Okay. Clayton does go as a, into serve, missionary service later, but elsewhere. Okay. Because um, Clayton was a little bit behind him in his studies at the seminary. Okay. Got it. Um, Claude seems to have had a sympathetic personality. Why do I say that? There is one photograph of him, which again we'll share in the video version, a photo taken during his time working with Turks. It has a caption on the back that reads simply, A group of believers in Asia Minor, 1907, Elder Claude Akmudi standing in rear. We have that photo in the General Conference archives. Now, although he was the Western missionary and he was an ordained pastor, Claude hasn't positioned himself front and center in the place of honor which actually missionaries very often do, uh, perhaps just instinctively without thinking about what it implies. But Claude isn't there. He's standing modestly in the last row of the group, which consists of people of all ages. And many of them are smiling, Sam. So clearly they are at ease with this foreigner. So much so that the men are happy for their wives and children to be there in the photo and to mix with him. So I think this says something pretty eloquent about Claudac Moody's character and personality. Sure. And maybe his personal experience of tragedy made him a more effective missionary because he could have that empathy for people. Your analysis of this photo, as a historian, do you, do you take time to look at, at these, the photos that we have, those artifacts? Yes, very just, much so. Just, just, okay, let me try and imagine what it was like. And right. And sometimes, you know, this is one reason in the, the books that I've published on Adventist history, I always have included quite a number of photographs. Now, sometimes the photographs, are, they, just not, they give you a, a picture of what the person looks like, which is nice to have. Mm -hmm. But at other times, the photos really do literally illustrate certain points, like that photograph of Akmudi. Or we talked um, some episodes ago about mission to West Africa, and we talked about C.E.F. Thompson, a Jamaican missionary, mm. a Jamaican missionary to uh, Ghana and Sierra Leone. Um, and we have a photograph of him with a local group of believers. Um, he is sitting front and center, but it's nice to see, as we said at the time, to see a colored person instead of a white person sure. sitting in the place of honor. Yeah, and so that photo is is also it's it it records an historic moment. Yeah. So sometimes the photos record really historic moments. At other times, though, you look at them and you say, "I can tell something about this person." For example, I have spent a huge amount of time, Sam, considering the career of William Spicer. Okay, 
the we talked about him yeah. just a few moments ago. Um, he's my Adventist hero. I'll be honest about that. And okay. so I've spent a lot of time working on his career, and I've looked at maybe fifty photographs of him. And it seems to me maybe I'm I'm reading too much into this, but it seems to me you can see his personality in it, and it's a kindly personality, an authentic Christian personality. The photographs look, he looks sincere and kind and authentic. Okay, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but like the photo of Akmudi gives you that, that the, insight. The, the analysis is that, you know, it's easy to analyze and say, wow, this is, this is extraordinary. Even the photograph of Wakem with the Armenian Bible workers that I talked about earlier, um, Wakem is smiling and we talked again a few episodes ago about a missionary in the South Pacific who went to the New Hebrides and he died there. But I mentioned we have a photograph of him with natives and they're all sitting and the thing is, they're so relaxed. The, the, the two Western missionaries, the man and his wife and three local headhunters, but they're all sitting relaxed. It's very obvious that they know each other, they trust each other, they like each other. Hmm. So photographs, Sometimes it's just neat to be able to put a face to a name, yeah. but at other times they tell us something about the people. They really do. And you have the privilege of directing the General Conference Archive that right. holds thousands of these photographs. Absolutely, and, and it's, it's a privilege, and there's, we don't know all the photographs we have. There's, there's more to be gained from that. Yeah. But as that photograph shows, Claude didn't remain in Constantinople, in the big imperial capital city. Instead, he's going out into villages and small towns and working with people. And actually, within four days of his first landing at the imperial capital, he'd begun his first itinerary. We know that from a report he writes. He went out and worked among the ordinary people of the Ottoman Empire rather than targeting expatriate Westerners. And a lot of Adventist missionaries in the, in the Middle East they have so little hope of reaching Muslims that they only concentrate on reaching expatriate Westerners. Which is a good start. That's where Paul did in the first well, century. He went to the synagogue first. and To then, the Jews first, yes. And then he extended to others. But then he extends. And the problem yeah. is they don't always extend. I see. And so uh, in Egypt, for example, one of the things they're trying to, to do is to ha they have a vegetarian restaurant in Cairo. Well, by its nature, a vegetarian restaurant isn't going to reach the ordinary people of Egypt. It's only going to reach Westerners. Yeah. And so you've immediately circumscribed what you can do by your institutional choices. We're not going to reach these people. But Akmudi, no, he's trying to reach the ordinary people, the ordinary Turks. Mm -hmm. um, but as we've touched on before, if you work in the hinterland, it entails certain risks. You're more likely to encounter disease. And Claudac Moody contracted pulmonary tuberculosis. Fourteen months after his arrival, the General Conference Executive Committee was having to consider a replacement, and it actually voted an action to advise Brother Ak Moody to be careful of his health. But he had a vast territory to cover, um, much of which wasn't covered by railway, so you had to take very long journeys. So Claude was either unwilling or felt unable to take their advice. Further, as a missionary leader later recalled, he was determined to remain at his post of duty as long as possible. And this exacerbated his condition. He wrote to church leaders in Washington, D.C. that he was so afflicted by poor health that I find it necessary to make immediate plans to come to America. And in fact, he did return to America. 
He left Constantinople on January 10, 1909, and arrived in New York City on February 5, 1909. A colleague wrote that Claude hoped, after a brief sojourn in his native land, sufficiently to recover his health to resume his missionary labors in his chosen field, but in this he was disappointed. The disease made steady progress till the end came. And Sam Claude died in Long Beach, California on July 23, 1911, after an 18-month illness. So tuberculosis is like that. Claude was not yet 30 years old. Wow. Now, we've touched on this before about overwork, and Arthur George and Claudac Moody both had serious illnesses exacerbated by their tendency to overwork. I think that is actually one of the chronic diseases of early Adventist missionaries. Not only... Starting with James White. Starting with James White, who you recall we touched on this, died at the age of 60. Pioneering overwork. Pioneering overwork, (laughs) having strokes, two strokes in his 40s. Um, So as well as all the the tropical fevers, uh, the dysentery, the typhoid, the smallpox, the tuberculosis, overwork was a chronic disease of Adventist early Adventist missionaries. They took an action. I, I can't get over that. They took an action for him to take care of his health. Well, that, that's what you, you mentioned before. They, they voted. They advised him to be careful. Mm-hmm. They advised him to be careful of his health. But what does that mean? But it was in a committee. It was I'm, in a committee. I'm, I'm, no, no, that's right. The point right. I'm making is yep. they discussed his health in a committee. Yes. And they all agreed to let him know yes. that he should take care of his health. Yes. And that shows the extent extent to which, even by 1999, church leaders are saying, okay, we have a problem here with with illness and a death toll. And and, and it does speak well of church leaders that they were sympathetic to this. Mm -hmm. And we touched in the last episode about Robert Blechner uh, and Gigi Lowry, both of whom church leaders tried to to help in effect and who wouldn't be helped. Right. Um, Do we still do that today? If we notice, I mean, I, I... That's a good question. I don't know the answer. And both you and I have a little bit of a tendency to overwork ourselves. Indeed. And I think at times our colleagues are perhaps more likely to facilitate that than to, than to check us. Yeah. And, but, you know, it comes from this spirit of I'm working for the Lord and so I have to give my all. And I think it was particularly true for early missionaries because they, very often, it was only they, with, maybe with a spouse who were the only official representatives of the church for hundreds of miles. And so they felt very keenly the obligation to do their uttermost, to do their absolute uttermost, to share the good news of Jesus with people who knew little or nothing of him. So I think it's, it's there for all church leaders because we're working for God, but I think it's particularly there for missionaries because if they don't do it, who will? And there are still many missionaries in the Middle East who have to go through that struggle of balancing family and their health and the needs of the mission. Yes. And sometimes it seems you, you must wonder, am I wasting my time? Yeah. Because you work and you work and you work and, and the number of converts, you, know, you don't see that. No, it's uh, not like some parts of the world no. where thousands are being baptized. Right. So you need, you need trust and faith that God is in control and you're doing your best. Uh, as you go through. Yeah. Thank you, David. And thank you for watching or listening, depending on the platform. Thank you for joining us in Mission 150, this podcast dedicated to Adventist history and to telling stories of these missionaries. 
please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel or listening on your favorite podcast platform. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary and um, missionaries around the world, you can go to AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities today, go to VividFaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world. Thank you.